We're starting a new series, as you know. And so let us stand now as we read from 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's very long reading today. All of two verses. Um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. It's right. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word, for uh, this new book that we are looking at this morning. And Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would soften our hearts, that your word may take root in our hearts and bear much fruit for, for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said, we are, have taken a pause from Genesis. Jacob's life is finished. Don't worry, we will come back in, in months and weeks to come um, and finish off Genesis and get into Joseph's life. But in the meantime, we're going to look at Paul's first letter to Timothy. And this sermon is somewhat of an um, introduction to this book as, as a whole. And so that's why we're just going to look at the two opening verses uh, this morning, which, which introduce this letter to us. They introduce us to its author, which we will see as, as Paul, and to its recipient, uh, Timothy. And through these two brief verses, we will see that it proclaims gospel Greetings to us. That's the title of the sermon, Gospel Greetings and Gospel Blessings to Those Who Hear It. So what do we know about this short letter? Well, in these two verses, they tell us that it was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, whom he calls his true child in the faith. And it's believed that this letter was written in the early 60s A.D., Okay, so that's, just bear that in mind, that, that's some um, 30 years from when Jesus died and he was ascended into heaven. It's in people who witnessed the resurrection were still alive when this letter was written. Um, it was written also during uh, Paul's fourth missionary, missionary journey, um, which when we know that because um, there are clues in the letter. He tells us that he was in Macedonia when, when he wrote this. And we know from the book of Acts that he went to Macedonia on his fourth missionary journey. Macedonia is, is today uh, part of modern-day Greece, and, but north of Greece in a country called North Macedonia. Um, and this letter is also known, it's grouped together usually by theologians um, to be called uh, part of the pastoral epistles so the pastoral epistles are three of paul's letters remember he he wrote 13 letters um he wrote the bulk of the new testament that's the loan is quite remarkable um 
It's one of three letters which he wrote not to churches, because most of his other letters are written to churches. The church to the, in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, etc., etc. These three letters are the exception that they are written to pastors of churches. That's why they're called the pastoral epistles. So two of them are addressed to a pastor, Timothy, who was an elder at a church in Ephesus. We're going to see that um, throughout this letter. And then the other one is written to another uh, pastor, uh, Titus. So what was the occasion of this letter? Why did Paul need to write this letter to Timothy? Well, as we're going to see throughout the, the next couple of weeks, um, we'll see this also this morning, is that Timothy was, was Paul's young understudy. He was his protege. Okay? Paul had been discipling uh, Timothy for, for many years, and um, in many ways he could be seen as, as, as Paul's successor. Um, Timothy had been ordained as an elder. And we see clues of this uh, in this letter, for example, in, in chapter 4, 14, where uh, it tells us that um, Timothy, uh, the elders, the council of the elders, what it says, had laid hands on Timothy, which we know from other parts of Scripture that that's what happens when, when someone is ordained as an elder. When the elders of the church lay hands on someone else, what they're doing is they're ordaining that person to the office of, of elder. So now he is an elder. He's serving as an elder at the church in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And this church was facing some serious challenges. Um, the big issue, and this is what we're going to see from next week, is that false teachers had infiltrated the church. Um, even the leadership of the church had been infiltrated by these false teachers. And so they were spreading very destructive heresies. They were confusing the congregation. Um, they were even leading some of them astray. And so Paul, as Timothy's mentor, is, is, is writing this letter to him to give him some advice. You know, how to deal with these problems. Um, he writes this letter, obviously, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's, it's scripture. We'll get into this in a bit more detail in a moment. He's instructing him on how to deal with these false teachers, but it's not just how to deal with false teachers. Also, we're going to see it. There's some general instruction for, for the church as well. Um, he gives instruction regarding prayer and worship and devotes a big chunk to qualifications for elders and deacons. So maybe you're thinking, well, you know, what relevance can this letter, which was written by, you know, to some young man at some obscure church in, in Turkey some 2,000 years ago, how can any of that truly have any relevance for us today? Surely times have changed. Surely the culture has changed. Because we're going to see this. There's a couple of controversial things in this letter um, about women and, and other things that we'll, we'll get to, okay? Surely, then, no, no, times have changed. Things can't apply to us. We are much more advanced. Well, sure, times have certainly changed, but in many ways, they haven't. Human nature is still exactly the same. We still are sinful selves. That hasn't changed since Adam. And as we will see, as we look at these issues that Paul brings up um, in terms of that were issues in the church. Well, those issues, we face them too. <laughs> okay, there are 
perennial issues that the church faces from generation to generation that don't seem to go away. False teachers is one of them. How to deal, you know, how to organize, you know, pray correctly is another. How to, you know, correctly, you know, build up leadership is, is another, etc., etc. So things haven't really changed that much. But regardless of it, whether it's relevant or not for us is really besides the point. The main reason why we, <laughs> we want to look at this letter is, well, it's God's word. Okay, it's infinitely relevant to us by the fact that it is God's authoritative word. And it's interesting to note that this letter was recognized as canonical scripture by the early church very quickly. I mean, most certainly before the end of the first century. Now, there's extra biblical evidence for that, plenty of it. But within scripture as well, there's evidence for this as well. When uh, Peter, so the apostle Peter in his letters in, in 2 Peter 3.16, he calls all of Paul's letters scripture or graphe in Greek. And that word graphe is also used to describe, it was traditionally used to describe the Old Testament scripture for the Jews. But now the apostle Peter is calling Paul's letters graphe he is putting Paul's letters on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures, basically saying to us, it's the word of God. So we need to understand that the apostles were certainly aware that they were writing scripture. There's a tendency now to say, oh no, it was only three, some hundred, couple of hundred years later that the church decided that these things were scripture. Uh-uh. There's evidence in the text, and here's an example of it, that the apostles were aware that they were, God was leading them by the Spirit to, to write uniquely inspired letters to his church. They knew that they were writing the word of God. So while this is certainly written to a particular context, at a certain place, to Timothy in Ephesus, it's much more than that. It's a letter to us, to Christ's church Today, guidance, Christ's guidance to Christ's church for all time, even our little congregation here in Waterfall, Durban, South Africa. So let's get into this. And the first point that we're going to look at is Paul, Christ's apostle. So from verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So the letter starts off with Paul introducing himself right up front. He, he declares his apostolic credentials in the very first verse. So he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God himself. So why does he state this up front? Why is his apostolic status so important for us to hear before we even read any further in this letter. Well, what this is telling us is that this is no ordinary letter. Okay, it's not just some any old pastor writing to any old church. It's telling us that this letter bears unique apostolic authority. 
If we look at the scripture, all the apostles were personally appointed and authorized by Jesus himself. Hey, there's, in the Bible, there's no such thing as a self-appointed apostle. In fact, uh, Paul is, addresses self-appointed apostles in it's, it's the beginning of 1 Corinthians and essentially calls those imposters. The nature of the apostles that only God can appoint apostles. And Paul has indeed been appointed by God. And, and we see it here. He tells us that he was appointed an apostle by the command of God. We see it in other places in the New Testament. For example, Romans 1 verse 1 um, in, in many other places. And the other thing about the apostolic office was that it was only available to those who had been witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see this as a qualification for elder for apostle when um, in Acts 1. Hey, Judas um, had to be replaced. Remember, he betrayed Christ and he committed suicide. He was a part of the original 12 apostles that Christ himself had appointed. Now they need to fill that. And so in Acts 1.22, they lay out the conditions, the necessary qualifications for to be considered an apostle. And one of the important qualifications is that you had to be a witness to the resurrected Christ. And so that's why Matthias was, was chosen by lot, which that was the way in which the Holy Spirit directed that that process and so he was chosen so paul sure he wasn't present at the resurrection of jesus after the crucifixion but he did meet that qualification because we know that in acts 9 the resurrected christ appeared to paul on the damascus road so he he did see he did encounter the resurrected christ so he does match the the qualifications necessary in order to be apostle and then he was appointed personally by god to be an apostle now the nature of this apostolic office that that paul holds is that as the uniquely appointed leadership of the church the apostles were called to lay the foundation stone of the church along with the prophets. And, and that's what Ephesians 2.20 tells us. Because we've got to understand that this period in the early church is a very important period in re- redemptive history. Okay, Jesus has, has died and rose again. He's initiated the new covenant through um, his, his death and resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. And now there's... There's a shift between the, the Old Testament people of God and the, the New Testament people of, of God, the, the new Israel, which is now the, the church. And so the, the role of the apostles was to lay the foundation of the New Testament church. And that's exactly what we see them doing in, in the New Testament. One of the, their most important tasks that God um, set them aside to do was and the, and the laying of this foundation was that they were to receive the gospel special revelation from god that would form the new testament so that's why we see in, in acts not acts in 1 corinthians 15 
three to four, one to five, Paul gives a very clear uh, explanation of the gospel. And he says, that which I received, I now tell to you. And they, in that you see the function of the apostle is having received by special revelation this gospel. The role of the apostles now is to share that with the church. And they did so, we see in terms of their preaching and teaching. But thankfully for us, they wrote it down. And that's why we have the gospel today. So it was through this um, receiving of special revelation of God, um, which became the New Testament, that the foundation of the church has been laid. So what Paul is telling us is introducing himself an apostle, pointed by God. He's essentially saying that, guys, this letter is divinely inspired. This is the word of God. So, so sit up and listen. He's invoking his apostolic authority. Now, you see, it also tells us by implication that there are no more apostles today. In fact, there haven't been any apostles since Paul and the rest of them died in, in, in the first century AD. It was an explicitly temporary office with a, a specific purpose to lay the foundation of the church, as it says in Ephesians 2.20. And we know that with a building, once the foundation has been laid, you build a structure on top of it. They had a, a, it was a unique office with a u, unique responsibility Primarily to receive special revelation from God. So that having been done, we've, we've got the gospel, we've got the New, the New Testament. Well, there's no need for any new apostles. In any case, there's no one today who, who fits the biblical criteria for being a true apostle. I mean, unless you lived 2,000 years ago, well, there's, there's no chance that you witnessed the, the resurrection of Christ. And also, we know that, that God hasn't appointed any other apostles since the New Testament era. So, I know, especially in our church context, it's very common to, to, to hear about you know, people calling themselves apostles and prophets and things like that. Uh, but specifically with apostles, um, any self-appointed apostle, any person who would take on the label apostle today needs to be rejected as a false teacher and, and as a deceiver because it is, they are explicitly going against God's revealed word in, in, in claiming that office. It does not um, exist today. Um, but yet we still, it is correct for us to call the church apostolic. And that's what our creeds teach us, the Nicene Creed and the Apostolic Creed. Um, so the other historic confessions of faith. We, call, we are an apostolic church. And we are an apostolic church not because we have apostles leading us, not because there's an apostolic team around us. But we are an apostolic church because we believe and teach exactly the same gospel that the apostles received and then handed down to us in the New Testament in order for us to hear and preach and, and understand. 
So, Paul, called to be apostle. It leads us to our second point. Timothy, true child of the faith, from verse 2a. Timothy, my true child in the faith. So, in this verse, we, we see to whom this letter is written. It's written to Timothy. Who was Timothy? Well, if we, the first place we read about him in the New Testament is in Acts 16. And he was a native of Lystra, which was in Galatia at the time. And Galatia is in modern-day Turkey. And Acts 16 tells us that he was born to a Greek father, so a Gentile father, and a Jewish mother. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it tells us his mother's name. His mother's name was Eunice. And also his grandmother, Eunice's mother, was also a believer. So they were Jewish Christians. They were Messianic Jews. And both his mother and grandmother, his grandmother was Lois. So it appears to us that Timothy was born into a Christian family. And so we, we don't read, unlike Paul, who had a radical conversion experience in the Damascus Road, we don't read about a radical conversion experience with Timothy. And you know what? That's, uh, that's okay. Okay, there are some people who God radically saves and they want drugs and, and all of that. And then they, you know, saw the light. That, that's wonderful. It's amazing to see God work like that. But it's also okay not to have a big bang testimony. And we see this with somebody like Timothy. He grew up, it was the ordinary means of grace which brought him to faith. He grew up in a Christian home. He was um, it's clear from 2 Timothy 1, he was discipled in the faith by his mother and his, his grandmother. He obviously was brought up in the church as well, so um, catechized in the church. And it was through these normal things of the preaching of God's word, of prayer, of discipleship, of receiving the sacraments, that God was slowly working in his life and, and brought him to faith. And that's... That, for many of us, that's also our experience. And that's a legitimate experience too. So Paul calls Timothy here his true child in the faith. Now, the Greek phrase for, the, the, that's, well, the Greek word for, for child then, is, it's a very affectionate word. It, it's a it's technon. And it's, it's like a, it describes not just a, it's like a little, a little kid, you know, and he used it in an affectionate way. Um, and he, so Timothy, Paul clearly he sees Timothy as his own spiritual son. He's obviously sowed a lot of, you know, a lot into the sky. Um, and he has high hopes for him. So how did their paths cross? Well, we also see that in, in Acts 16. Um, Paul was at that stage was on his second missionary journey. And... Um, the other, other Christians in the area told Paul about Timothy. He said, hey, there's this guy. He was, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He's a man of faith. It says that he was well spoken of by the brothers in Acts 16, verse 2. And so Paul then asked Timothy to join him on, on a missionary journey then and there. And so they, they, they go out as, as, you know, partners in the kingdom. And, um, you know, he, Paul disciples him through through being out on, on the mission field. And so from there, uh, their bond grew and, and, and Timothy became increasingly involved in, in ministry and to the point where he was eventually ordained as an elder in the church. 
So, interesting footnote, he was not made an apostle. Okay, if, there was, if the apostolic succession was, was true, you would expect that naturally Paul's successor would most certainly be an apostle, but he's not. He was ordained as an elder um, because the apostolic office was temporary and the nature of the office of elder is that it's the ordinary office that continues now in the church today. And you even see this progression in scripture itself as redemptive history unfolds. So Paul sees Timothy as his successor in ministry and, and you even see how he writes about him in, in the New Testament. He's, Paul, Paul mentions Timothy nine, nine out of his 13 letters. That's telling you something. Saying you that he, Timothy is prominent in his life. And in Philippians 2.20, Paul writes about Timothy that I've got no one like Timothy. He trusted implicitly in him. And so he thought very highly of him. And as his mentor, it's appropriate that he um, now, Paul writes this letter to him as he is finding himself in in the midst of, of these challenges in the church of Ephesus. So it's, he writes this letter as this wise father to, to his, his son in the faith. So this brings us to our third point, gospel greetings from the rest of verse 2. It says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So now that the introductions are out of the way, um, Paul starts with, this greeting and it's not just any old greeting but it's a uniquely christian greeting it's a greeting that is saturated with gospel truths in the name of god himself now if you're familiar with paul's letters you'll see that paul begins most of his letters in in in, in this way um and it's a version of the greeting that we say or that the leader of the service will always say to, to the congregation at the, at the beginning of the service. Hey, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these first words that are heard in this letter, these first words, some of the first words that are heard in the service, they are not words of judgment. They are not words of condemnation. They are not words of wrath. But they are words of grace, of mercy, peace now maybe we've heard these words so often that we've become accustomed to them and just we get kind of numbed to to their significance you almost expect to hear them but the reality is that they are unexpected and that they are extraordinary They are unexpected because actually none of us deserves to hear those words. Even if we don't realize it, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us who has fully kept the commandments of God. And just in this past week, we have all sinned through our actions, whether it's being, whether it's being, um, being unkind to others or ungracious or even violent towards others, whether it's through our thoughts. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that 
If we lust after a woman in our heart, it's the same as that we have committed adultery. If we have hated someone in our hearts, it's the same as, as, as murder. Okay, or our words. You know, the, gossip, the, the, the New Testament calls gossip and, and slander sins. So there's not one of us who can say that we're we okay as we are. We've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. And, and it's even deeper than that. Our natural tendency inclines to rebellion. Our natural tendency is to do the opposite of what God says. Our natural tendency is to forget the gospel. And that's why it is so important to come every Lord's Day and hear the gospel because we need to be reminded of this gospel because our sinful tendency is we, we forget it. Our natural tendency is that we, we, are, we don't seek God, that we, we want to live lives independently from God. So what this means then is that all of us are lawbreakers. And the penalty for breaking the law is that we, we deserve the death penalty. We deserve to receive God's judgment and wrath and spend an eternity in hell because the wages of sin is death. Now, no, that, that's not the politically correct message to hear in these tolerance-soaked uh, in this tolerance so culture that, that we are in. Okay, we we want to hear that we're all kind of good and decent people and that we're all, you know, we, we're all entitled to, you know, to be with God in heaven because, you know, we're amazing people. But that's not what the scripture tells us. The scripture first gives us bad news, that we are lawbreakers and we deserve hell. So in the light of that, can you see how unexpected this greeting here really is? To us, who outside of Christ deserve wrath and judgment, God speaks grace and mercy and peace. And it's these things which... We need to hear exactly. So firstly, grace. Well, grace is, is the undeserving gift that God gives to us as sinners. And what's the nature of this gift? Well, is that though we deserved help, God nevertheless elected us for salvation before even the creation of the world. He sent his son to die on the cross and face hell instead of us on the cross. Forgiving our sins because he rose from the dead and then sealing us with his spirit and in doing so guaranteeing us eternal life in the new creation. All that is a gift. It's a present that God freely gives us when we receive Christ by faith. And that's, that's the essence of grace, this undeserved gift of our salvation and our ongoing salvation. Secondly, mercy. Now, Paul knows about God's mercy from personal experience. And we see later on in this chapter, in verse 13, he tells us that he was a recipient of God's mercy. He says in verse 13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but 
I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So what is God's mercy? Well, it's God's mercy is, is not being treated how you deserve. And so despite Paul's heinous sins, remember he was slaughtering Christians. He was, he was a hater of God. God had mercy on him. And in fact, this, this word, the, the, the Greek word that's used here in, in, the, in the Old Testament um, translation uh, in, in the Greek, it translates the Hebrew word chesed. Now chesed is it's the word to describe God's unbreakable covenant love with his people. Okay, the, our Bible translates that steadfast love, usually, or loving kindness. Um, God's faithfulness to his people. And so God is merciful to us that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. As 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us. And then lastly, peace. So instead of treating us as our sins deserve, as his enemies and objects of wrath, We don't deserve peace. We deserve quite the opposite. But instead, he greets us in peace. Hey, shalom, the Hebrew word. And that's the same greeting that, remember, Jesus greeted his disciples with after the the resurrection. So our God draws near to us in peace because Christ, who is the prince of peace, has now forgiven us our sins. He's reconciled us now to our holy God through his blood. And because of what Jesus has done, we can now enjoy peace. God is now at peace with us at his people. He is no longer angry with us if we are in Christ. And having this peace, it means that we can have assurance of our salvation. No longer are we... um, to assume that our salvation, we are unsure of our salvation because we're not sure if we've done enough good works or if we've kept enough faith or whatever it is. But in Christ, knowing his peace, we have assurance that he will save us. He will bring us to the last day. He will, nothing in heaven and on earth, angels nor demons, um, heart nor depth can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. He will finish his work of salvation in us, He won't let us go. And because of that, we can enjoy a life before His presence, that we are His chosen children, knowing His grace, knowing His favor, His joy, and His love upon us. Now, the text is abundantly clear from where this grace, mercy, and peace come. Where do they come from? They come exclusively from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So in verse 1, God is called our Savior. God the Father is called our Savior. And Jesus Christ, the source of our hope. And now we see in this verse how these, these things come together. That we see that because our salvation is entirely the work of God. 
And salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's why God is called in verse 1. He's called our Savior. He does it all. Our salvation is all His sovereign work. We bring absolutely nothing to the table. It is not so that we do our 1% and God does His 99% or we do our bit and God does His bit. No. God does 100% of it. And thankfully he does so because if we even had 1% to do with our salvation, we'd mess it up. Because the reality is we're unable to bring anything to the table. Hey, we were, the Bible, we heard it in the reading of, of the gospel in Ephesians 2. The, we were dead in our sins. If you're dead, you can't do anything. God has to come and do everything. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We didn't. We couldn't even have any. Didn't even have any inclination to desire God or to seek Him. Quite the opposite. We were quite intent on in, in, in following in the passions of our sin. But because of His great mercy, He came down to us. He called us to Him Himself by the power of His Spirit. He raised us up from death to life. He replaced our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, filled us with his spirit, cleansed us of our sins, washed us, and, and Ephesians 2 also says he's, he now seats us with him in heavenly places and seals us with his spirit in order that it, it's a little deposit of, of, of eternal life that is guaranteed to us. God has done all of those things for us. He alone gives us grace and mercy and peace through his son, Jesus Christ. And so wrapping this up, we've seen that it's Jesus is the only one who's lived a completely obedient life to God, the only sinless one. And because he's sinless, he's undeserving of death. But what does he do? Obedient to the Father, he takes upon himself the penalty of sin that, that we deserve. And that penalty of sin was his death on the cross. And his body was broken instead of ours. His blood spilt instead of ours. But precisely because he was sinless, God raised him up from the dead. And through this, he saves us completely. And chosen us from the beginning of the world, from before the beginning of the world, forgiven us our sins, sealed us with his spirit, making sure that we, we don't fall away. He grants us grace and mercy and peace that we don't deserve. And he gives us true and, ever, and lasting hope as our faithful savior. So brothers and sisters, repent. In other words, turn from your sins. Leave your sins behind. And receive and trust, continue to trust in Jesus Christ, our hope, our faithful Savior and Lord. Receive his undeserved grace and mercy and know that you are no longer under the condemnation of your sins. In Christ, you are no longer under God's wrath. But instead, he comes to you in peace and seals you with his spirit for life everlasting in his presence.
Amen. Let's pray.